completion of the mystery. And then the parentheses continued on in through the first 13 verses of chapter 11, where we saw the coming of the messengers. And then last week, we picked back up in the chronology in chapter 11 and verse 14, where we see here the crowning of the Messiah. And we saw last time in verse 14, in the first part of verse 15, the announcement of heaven. And that's Roman numeral 1 on your outline, the announcement of heaven. And we saw, first of all, letter A, the announcement of the third woe. The announcement of the third woe. Verse 14 says, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, if you haven't been with us in our study of it, you look, come to verse 14 and you really can't make heads or tails out of what in the world he's talking about. It sounds like it's incredibly difficult, but it's really not. In the book of Revelation, what God does is he takes 14 chapters right at the very heart of the book. And in those 14 chapters, what he does, this is in chapter 6 through 19, is he brings us four times through the same event. Four different times through the same event, and that event, of course, is the tribulation period, and the tribulation period is that seven-year period of judgment upon the earth that culminates with the second coming of Christ to this planet. And we, we've noted that he brings us four times through this incredibly horrendous period of time so that we can see it from every side. It's much like the, the Gospels. The Gospels are the same account of the first coming of Jesus Christ, just helping us to see it from a different perspective. And just like the four Gospels provide those four different perspectives of the first coming of Christ, the book of Revelation provides for us four perspectives of the second coming of Christ. Now, the first time that he brought us through this tribulation period, he did it back in chapter 6 through the opening of seven seals of a book. And what we found is through chapter 6, by the time he opens the sixth seal, we have already completed one time through the tribulation period. And then in chapter 8 and verse 1, when that seventh seal is opened, what we find is that seventh seal contained the figure through which God was going to bring us through the tribulation period for the second time, the figure of the sounding of seven trumpets. And as we were coming through this second time through the tribulation period, through the sounding of these, these trumpets, we came through four of those trumpets, and we saw through the sounding of those first four trumpets just some incredibly unbelievable things that are going to be taking place on this planet in the, in the very near future. And then after that fourth trumpet was sounded, John said in chapter 8 and verse 13 that an angel came through and announced that the sounding of the last three trumpets were going to be so horrendous that they were even called by a, a different name. That these last three trumpets, he says, are going to be called woes. And a, a woe is a, is a term that is an exclamation of, of grief. You know, sometimes when people are grieving, they, they'll say, woe is, is me. And those last three trumpets are woes. And, and so just make sure that you understand that the sounding of the last three trumpets are the same as the three woes. Okay, so now go to chapter 11. 
And let's look at verse 14 again. The announcement is made in heaven that the second woe is past. The second woe is the sixth trumpet. And behold, the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet, cometh quickly. So that's the announcement of the third woe. And then next letter B on your outline, we see the announcement of the heavenly voices. And this is what Frank was just talking about just a minute ago as we were worshiping. The announcement of the heavenly voices. We saw back in chapter 10 and verse 7 that God made all the inhabitants of heaven aware of what was going to take place when that seventh trumpet sounded. Back in chapter 10 and verse 7, he let us know that when that seventh trumpet sounds, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the suffering servant when he came to this planet at his first coming, he says, when that seventh trumpet sounds, the Lord Jesus Christ will stand to his feet, he will return to this earth, and he will come to this earth this time as the conquering king. And so God let all the inhabitants of heaven know that back in chapter 10 and verse 7. Be, be waiting for the sounding of that seventh trumpet. Now when we come to Revelation chapter 11 and that seventh trumpet sounds, as soon as it does, all of the voices of heaven begin to start working it, man, because they know what this is going to mean. And verse 15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven and what those voices were announcing is Roman numeral 2 on your outline the arrival of the kingdom the arrival of the kingdom verse 15 says that they were saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and we spent a great deal of time last week just trying to make sure that you understand that this event that they're talking about here with the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ is just such an unbelievably significant event that our minds can hardly conceive of it. What this verse is talking about, what, what verse 15 is talking about is that time of the second coming of Christ. That time when he comes back to this planet. It is that time that is referred to all the way through the word of God as the day of the Lord. And we talked about the fact that not only is that time, not only is this event the theme of the book of Revelation, we began to see last week that it is much, much, much bigger than that. It, it, it's so big. We, we saw letter A. It's the theme of every dimension of existence. Now that sounds like it's, it's overstated. It is not an overstatement. That event is the theme of every dimension of existence. Folks, this event that we're seeing here in verse 15, this is it. This is what all of existence is for. It is for this moment. And we began to work our way through and say, what, what are you saying? It's the theme of everything in existence. We saw, first of all, that it's the theme of the Bible. The reason so many people have a difficult time understanding the Bible is they want to make themselves the theme and they read it in terms of themselves when really what this book is really all about is the day of the Lord. A day that God has planned when His Son is going to rule and reign on this earth. He's going to take a throne. And you see, if you miss that in your study of the Word of God, well, you're going to miss the real heartbeat of this thing. 
The Bible begins with a struggle over a throne. It ends with somebody sitting on a throne. And everything between that is just the battle between who it is that is actually going to sit there. And we saw that over 800 references in the Word of God point to that time when Jesus Christ will take his throne and will rule the world. So it's the theme of the Bible, but not only is it that, it's also the theme of Bible preaching. We saw in Acts chapter 3 and verse 21 that the second coming of Christ which he calls in Acts 3.21, the times of restitution of all things. It's that event, and, and listen, I quote, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Every preacher who is worth his salt from the beginning of time until the Lord sits on that throne is going to have a theme in his preaching. That theme has always been the same. And that theme is Jesus Christ is going to come back to this planet and it's going to be the time of restitution of all things. And whoever is worth their salt is just constantly pounding that thing. We saw a great example of that in the book of Jude. In verse 14, it talks about Enoch who was the seventh from Adam. Thousands of years before Christ came to this planet the first time and what the dude is out there preaching day after day is the Lord's going to come and he's going to take up his throne in the city of Jerusalem and he's going to reign over all the world. The seventh guy from Adam thousands of years before the first coming of Christ preaching about the second coming of Christ. Then we saw not only is it the theme of the Bible, not only the theme of Bible preaching, but the theme of creation. And we began to just work off of the principle in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 where God lets us know that he has taken the intangible concepts of the Godhead and he's allowed us to be able to visualize or be able to see those things by the things that he created. He tells us that he took creation and uses these to teach us things about himself. And we saw in John chapter 9 that Jesus let us know that as long as he was in the world, he was the light of the world. But when the light of the world goes out, it gets dark, it becomes nighttime, and then there's something that comes up at nighttime that has no light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun, it's the moon, and we began to see that as you compare Scripture with Scripture, what the Scripture is teaching us is every single day, creation is painting a picture for us. And so that we didn't miss it, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 says that the day of the Lord is going to come. And what's going to happen on that day at the second coming of Christ is the Son, and it is even spelled capital S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, is going to rise with healing in His wings. The day of the Lord is going to come when the Son of Righteousness arises. And what we began to see is that since we have been in human existence now for the past 6,000 years, that God, for 2,160,000 days in a row, He has preached a message to us. That sun comes up every single day, and God's just shouting out through creation, the day of the Lord's coming. The Son of Righteousness is going to rise, and when He does, He's going to rule and reign this planet. So it's the theme of the Bible, it's the theme of Bible preaching, it's the theme of creation, it's the theme of prayer, that when Jesus taught us to pray, it was the first request he told us to pray. Pray that the kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we saw number five, it's the theme of salvation. 
basically what it comes down to folks is every single one of us are a kingdom most of the people on this planet today are sitting on the throne of their own kingdom ruling the kingdom of their life and what salvation is is who's gonna rule is it gonna be you or is it gonna be the Lord Jesus Christ and again it's just a, a picture of the fact that he wants to rule and reign not only us but the entire universe and so we saw that it's the theme of every dimension of existence but the real question we came to is is it the theme of every dimension of your existence oh it's wonderful to learn all that neat stuff about how God just paints that picture consistently through every dimension of, of existence but it comes down to is that really the theme of your existence and folks you know what the cold hard facts are that if the coming of the Lord and and the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this earth and taking the kingdoms of this world which this morning are under Satan's dominion and if that event him ruling and reigning and righteousness is not the theme of every dimension of our existence I want you to know something it's a great indication that in some way shape or form we have been caught in the web of this present evil world this event is to be in the heart of every single believer the theme of every dimension of our existence and when it is not we're caught just like a fly in a spider web we're caught in the web of this present evil world over which Satan is the head and again if you've missed this point if you weren't here last week or somehow you you floated out for a little while you gotta understand folks that the kingdoms of this world are presently under the dominion the power and the rulership of Satan and that's why the Bible in 2nd Corinthians 4 4 calls Satan the God of this world that's why John 16 11 calls him the prince of this world that's why Ephesians chapter 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. And that same verse goes on to say that he is the one who presides over the course of this world. And that's why 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world this morning lieth in wickedness. And you see, when you begin to see that, when you see that he is the one that is controlling the kingdoms of this world, all of a sudden you begin to understand why the Bible makes such strong statements about a believer's connection to this world's system. And folks, I think it's important that we all understand this morning that, that Satan is not sitting around somewhere in, in the midst of his kingdom of darkness going, Oh man, I just wish like crazy that I could get these people involved in a satanic cult of some kind. Now, you know what? I mean, if he could do that, he'd be grinning. That'd be nice. But I'm telling you, the dude is perfectly contented that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, live your life in his domain. And what is so sad is that most of the people on this planet who profess to know Jesus Christ as their <clears throat> as their Lord and Savior live their life in Satan's domain and with their mouth oh they profess that Jesus 
is Lord, but with their life, what they're really saying through their life is, I would rather live in Satan's kingdom. I'd rather have him ruling over me. And you see, that's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, don't fall in love with the world. Don't fall in love with the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? For all that is in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, he says, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. What he's saying is all of that junk is a part of a different kingdom. It's not the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the kingdom that he's establishing. And so he says, so don't fall in love with the world. The only things in that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's what he saved all of us out of. So now that you become a believer in Jesus Christ, it pleads with us. Don't fall in love with the world. Now it's, you know what, when you really begin to see it, man, ah, it's crazy that he has to say that to us. I mean, this is the system, y'all, that was sending all of us to hell. And now he rescued us out of that. But he has to say to us, but don't fall in love with it. And not only does the Bible tell us not to fall in love with it, it also tells us don't flirt with it. Don't flirt with it. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, James says, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. No, I, no, I don't love the world. I'm just friends with it. You, you take some men, you, you take some woman out, out to, to lunch, and you had such a wonderful time with your little friend there. You took her to dinner at night, and your wife, now what was up with, oh, I don't love her. We just, we just friends. You okay with that? I, I, I doubt it. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't love it. I, I'm just friends with it. And God says, hey, cut that trash. If you're the friend of it, you're the enemy of me. And you remember how he starts the verse? Ye adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And you see what you begin to put together there at calling us adulterers and adulteresses because we're friends with the world you see our connection to Jesus Christ is that of a husband and wife relationship 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2 says that we as believers in Jesus Christ this morning have been espoused to one husband that one husband is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is wanting is when he appears again to find us a chaste virgin and he says, as you spend your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, friends with this world, he says, I just want you to know, 
I view that as spiritual adultery. You will not be a chaste virgin at that time. So he says, don't fall in love with it. Don't flirt with it. But then he tells us something else in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He said, don't focus on it. Don't even focus on it. You see, and this is where a lot of believers get themselves messed up. They, they spend their time looking at this world and, and focusing on it. And Paul tells us why it is that he was able to be so used of God the way that he does, or the way that he was. You know what he says in 2 Corinthians 4.18? He says, but while we look not on things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And he says, that's where, that's where I'm focusing. That's where my attention is. He said the same basic thing in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. One and two. He said, if you then be risen with Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, seek those things which are above. Above what? Above this present evil world. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. You see, we're a part of a different kingdom now. And God keeps telling us over and over and over again, so don't go back and get connected to that system. Don't fall in love with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't focus on it. And then he tells us one other thing. He tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, don't fill yourselves with its treasures. Don't fill yourselves with its treasures. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves don't break through and steal. And you remember what he said at the end? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the principle is this. Our heart follows our investment. I guarantee you, you invest $200,000 in stocks, I promise you, you're going to check on your investment. And God is saying the same thing. Wherever you invest, your heart is going to follow. And he's saying, if you're laying up all this down here on the earth, your heart is going to follow. Your heart's going to be connected to this system down here. So he says, listen, lay it up there. Get your eyes off of this present system. And don't get caught up with filling yourselves with all this world's treasures. Fill your life with treasures that are going to last forever. So you see, it means nothing that this kingdom that we're talking about is the theme of the Bible, and it's the theme of Bible preaching, and it's the theme of creation, and it's the theme of prayer, it's the theme of salvation. But, you know, as far as my life is concerned, well, I'm just living for this world. <clears throat> It, it, it goes contrary 
to everything that we are. It's opposed to everything that he designed for us to be. It's, it goes a, a, totally against the grain of everything that he is. And so that's where we ended last time, asking ourselves, is our Lord coming in his kingdom? Is it the theme of every dimension of our existence? Because you see, folks, listen, one of these days, it will be. One of these days, that is going to be the theme of our existence. Now, now listen, God wants it to be the theme of our existence right now on this earth. But one of these days, it will be. And this is Roman numeral three. The adoration of the saints. In verses 16 and 17, the adoration of the saints. Now, the announcement of heaven is made in verses 14, the first part of verse 15. And those heavenly voices, you remember, were announcing the arrival of the kingdom in the remainder of verse 15. And that announcement spontaneously initiates the adoration of the saints and check it out y'all the saints are us you see folks the, the the crowning of the messiah the lord jesus christ coming in his kingdom and finally getting the glory that he deserves is the event that every believer in jesus christ is to be anticipating we, we spent just quite a bit of time right there talking about not being disconnected or being disconnected from the world But on the flip side of that thing what we begin to see is it's not just that we're disconnected from the world And we're just kind of floating around through this thing our connection is in another kingdom. We we've purposely unplugged ourselves from the kingdom of this world and we've purposely plugged ourselves in to another kingdom and the Bible says that if we're true believers in Jesus Christ and things are happening the way that it's supposed to happen, do you understand this, folks? We will literally groan for that event. We'll literally groan for it. This is Romans chapter 8. In fact, it says that all of creation is groaning and all of us who have been made sons of God, if you really understand who you are and you really understand what this kingdom is all about, he says it's something that causes you, causes your insides to groan. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 that we're so consumed with that event that we love His appearing. It's something that we have fallen in love with. The very thought that Jesus is going to come back and He's finally going to get the glory that He deserves. He says we love that event. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 2, it says that that event will become the focal point of the prayers of all of those that truly know the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our prayer through the entire church age is for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want you to check this out. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 16, here we are, and we're in heaven at this point. And, and understand this. At, at this point, all, all of the years of groaning in our spirits, they're behind us. All of the years of praying for the kingdom to come, they're behind us. All of that love that for all of our life since we became a believer in Jesus Christ, all of that loving of His appearing, 
when he would come to this earth in power and glory. All of those years of groaning and praying and loving, all of those years are behind us. And now in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 16, all of the people in the church age are in heaven. And for seven years now, we've been there. And we have been waiting anticipating the sounding of that seventh trumpet because we know what that seventh trumpet is going to mean for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're anticipating that time when heaven would open and the Lord Jesus Christ would rise from His throne and He would mount His white horse and He would descend back to this earth to settle the score with Satan and with all those who, who chose to follow His way. And as soon as the great voices in heaven announce that that time has come. Verse 16 says that the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God. And I want you to see it, man. We have invested so much in that as believers in Christ. We've groaned for it. We've prayed for it. We've longed for it. We've loved it. And for seven years, man, we've been waiting for that trumpet to sound and for it to happen. And now it has. And look at our response, man. Falling on our faces and worshiping God. Now, you know what? I I feel like we need to just talk for a second. Hold up. Some of y'all are going to miss a great message today. Because you're waiting for something to hit you. Maybe what, maybe I need to spell it out a little more clearly. This event we're talking about right here, if we're not praying for it to come right now, if we're not groaning in our spirits for it to come, if it's not something that we love, you don't need any more sermon than what you already got today. That's the sermon. We better, we better start getting dialed in to what he's dialed into. What he's dialed into is the theme of all of existence. It's the Lord Jesus Christ coming in his kingdom, getting what he finally deserves to get. And, and so, you know what? Really, I mean, we could, we could bow our heads. We could say, oh God, do work in me right now. Because which one of us can say... I love His appearing. I'm longing for it to the point to where I'm groaning and I pray for it every single day of my life. It's my life's blood. It's, my, it's the heartbeat of my life, is it? So, he says, the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats, it's happening, man. And they fall on their faces and they worship God. Now, If you've been with us through our study of the book of Revelation, you know that the 24 elders in the book of Revelation is a descriptive title of the raptured church in heaven. We learned that back in chapter 4. Why don't you just move on back there. Chapter 4. Now in chapter 4, what John is doing here, you'll recall, is he's in the midst of describing all of the things that he saw and heard and was experiencing after the rapture took place. And he says in verse 4, in the midst of all of this description, he says, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. 
And again, the 24 elders is the church. All of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for their salvation in the church age. In other words, in the period of time that we're presently living in. And here they are, here we are, if you will, seated in heaven, clothed in white raiment, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, having already been rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. We have the crowns upon our head. And you know what's interesting, folks, is every time that you see us in the book of Revelation, every time that you see the church, every time that you see these 24 elders, you know what we're doing? We're doing the same thing he wants us doing 24-7 here. Worshiping. In this same context, you see in verse 10 of chapter 4, that after we've been rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ and we've received the crowns that we sung about this morning, verse 10 says, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy. I know you're giving me these crowns, but I'm not worthy to put these things on. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And, and here we are, the redeemed church in heaven and glorified bodies, falling down before Him, worshiping Him, because He's the Creator. Then in chapter 5, the Father takes out the seven-sealed book, which is the title deed of the earth. And the question is sent out throughout the entire universe, looking for one who is worthy to take the book and open the seals. And there's absolute silence throughout the universe. Nobody moves a muscle throughout the entire universe because nobody is found worthy to go take that book out of the Father's hand and to begin to open the seals. And John begins to weep when all of a sudden something changes. Verse 7, The Lord Jesus Christ comes and takes the book out of the right hand of Him that sat upon the throne and watch what we do when He takes it. Verse 8, And when He had taken the book, the four beasts, here it is, and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. And they, we, sing a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And folks, here we are again, falling down before Him, worshiping Worshiping Him this time because He's the Redeemer. He was slain. He redeemed us back to God. And now go back to chapter 11 and verse 16. And I want you to watch the adoration that we give Him this time. Not because He's the Creator. Not just because He's the Redeemer but because He's the possessor 
of heaven and earth. And notice, first of all, in verse 16, the posture of our worship. The posture of our worship. Verse 16 says, And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, and just stop there for a second. Okay, now check it out. This is the third time now that we've seen the church worshiping in the book of Revelation. And each time we find that that worship is expressed by two things. Our posture, that falling down, and our proclamation, something that we say. And folks, listen, we've talked about this so many times through the years, but, but don't miss it. Let's just keep coming back to it. To that theme of worship. Listen, worship is really worthship. It's worthship. It is our expression to God of what He is worth to us. When we're talking about worship, don't, don't get it into some ethereal deal, you know, it's so mystical. You know what it is? It's the expression of what's in our hearts to Him of what he is worth to us it's it's humbling myself before him and ascribing to him that he alone is worthy of all praise and adoration and what we see here is that I express the humbleness of my worship not only through the words that I proclaim with my mouth but I express the humbleness of my worship to Him through the posture that I assume with my body. And did you notice it? Every time we're worshiping Him, our posture changes. We're falling down. Now don't just read over that, folks. Worship has to do with, with our posture, not just physically, but but in a spiritual kind of way as well. Listen, what, what we're saying to God by falling down is we're saying to God, your way is worth more to me than my way. You, you see, when you fall down before Him, you know what you do? You know what just happened to me when I fell down right now? I left my feet. My feet are what take me through life. They take me on my way. And when I come before God and I fall down before Him, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to go my way. What I want is I want Your way. And I humble myself before You right now to say, You are worthy of my life. So take it. I don't want to go the direction that my flesh wants me to go. I humble all of myself before you. I want to go your way. So God, show me your way. But by falling down, not only are we saying to God that your way is what is the most important to me, what we're also saying is your will is worth more to me than my will. You see, check it out. When I fall down before Him, 
I stop. I'm not going anywhere right now. We don't walk on our knees. We walk on our feet. I left my feet and I fall down before Him. And I'm saying, I'm stopping. I'm submitting. I yield. All of me. All of my will. I'm here, Lord, and I'm stopped in this position. And I'm waiting on you. I'm listening for your voice. I deem your voice the only voice worth following I don't want to go and carry out my will I don't want to listen to my I don't want to just get busy going through life I I fall down before you I bow my will before you but notice in verse 16 that our posture here is different in in those two previous occasions we, we looked at where we were worshiping. You see, the, the other times in chapter 4 and, and 5, it simply says that we fell down and, and apparently upon our knees. But now check it out in verse 16. When he takes up his power to rule and reign on the earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I want you to notice our posture then. We go from sitting on our seats in verse 16, not just to falling on our knees, but what? Falling on our faces. You, you see, when, I, when I've fallen on my knees, I've left my feet. I've left my way. And I've stopped. And I've submitted to His will. But when I'm on my knees, there's still too much of me showing. And by falling on our face, you know what we're doing? We're pouring ourselves out before God and we're saying, God, Your face is the only face that I seek. Your face, Lord, is the only face that is worthy of being shown. I don't want my face to even be shown in light of Your glory, in light of Your splendor, and Your majesty. And what we're saying to God is, listen, God, all of the glory belongs to You. Only you are to be noticed. I don't want to be noticed. And so I fall down on my face before you. When when the announcement of the kingdom coming is made in heaven, that's the posture that we're going to assume. poured out before him. And if you miss everything else in this entire message today, would you please try to catch this? The whole key to the Christian life is assuming on this earth right now that same posture that we are going to have then.
You see, that's what we were talking about at the beginning. Praying for His kingdom to come. His, the kingdom, it, it, you know what, if the rapture took place today, guys, you know what, the kingdom is still at least seven years away, but in a sense, there is a way that the kingdom comes to this earth now. The kingdom comes in me. When I bow my way, I bow my will, and I lay myself prostrate before him where I get out of the way, and he takes over the rulership of my life, and he begins to live his life on this earth right now through me. He rules and reigns in me. He's coming in his kingdom, and he's ruling now. Folks, it's the whole key to the Christian life. Doing now what we'll do then. You see, it's every single day of our life coming and casting ourselves before Him in the same way that one day we're going to do with our crowns. You know what we're going to say? I'm not worthy to wear this crown, man. This is yours. You know what we say every single day of our life? I'm not worthy of living this life. You put the life in me and so I cast myself before you. And by falling before Him, leaving our feet, we leave our way and, and we stop and we submit our will. And, and when we fall on our faces, we're getting out of His way. And self is obliterated. And we're saying, Lord, I want Your life to be seen in me. Help me to be out of the way. And You, Lord, live Your life through me. You, right now, get the glory through me that You deserve. And folks, that, in a nutshell, is as simple as I know how to make the Christian life. That's it. He's going to come in His kingdom, but we're not just waiting for that time. That kingdom can come every single day if we'll just assume that posture of worship, of falling down and laying ourselves before Him. So we see the posture of our worship in verse 16. And then we see the proclamation of our worship in verse 17. The proclamation of our worship. And the proclamation we make is the expression of our thanks, the, the expression of the gratitude of our hearts, first of all, for who He is. The expression of our gratitude for who He is. And I want you to see this in verse 17. Verse 17 says, Saying, okay, we saw the, the posture. We've, we fell down on our faces before Him and we worshipped Him. And here's the proclamation we're making. Here's what we're saying at that time. We're saying, We give Thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. And, and what we see is that first and foremost, our gratitude is expressed for who He is. Watch the titles that we use in worship as we begin to proclaim our thanksgiving, the gratitude of our hearts. Watch the terms that we'll use on that day. But by referring to Him as the Lord God, you know what we're doing? We're worshiping Him because of His supremacy. Because of His supremacy. What we're saying is, you are the Lord God. You are above all. 
You, Lord, are supreme. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it says, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, listen to it, but to us, that's those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, but to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. And what we see is that on that day, when He comes to take His kingdom, the proclamation of our lips is that He is the Lord God, and we express our hearts and worship to Him, offering thanks that He is the one Lord, that He is the one God, that He is the only one who is worthy to take the kingdoms of this world and to rule and reign in them. It's our recognition of and our gratitude for His supremacy. Next, by referring to Him as the Almighty, we're worshiping Him because of His sovereignty. His sovereignty. I'll help you. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y. You know what we're doing here? By calling Him the Lord God Almighty, we're acknowledging the fact that He is the one that holds all power. We're acknowledging the fact that He is the one that has all all might. We're expressing the gratitude of our hearts for His omnipotence. That He is the only one with the power to come and rule the kingdoms of this world. And go on by referring to Him as the one which art and wast and art to come. We're worshiping Him because of His singularity. His singularity. He is the one who transcends time and space. He is the only one who has always been and is and always will be. He's the only one to whom the past and the present and the future are all the same. They're all one to Him. They're all singular. And because of that, He alone is worthy to rule the kingdoms of this world. I mean, who else would you give them to? Some created being? Absolutely not. It needs to be one who has always been and is and always will be. And so we express the gratitude of our hearts and worship before Him because of His singularity. But not only do we express our gratitude in worship for who He is, we also express our gratitude for what he has done for what he has done and what is it the verse says that he has done the middle of verse 17 tells us two things first of all he exercises what is his at this point in time folks he is going to exercise what is his verse 17 says because thou hast taken to thee thy great power now look at the verse again because thou hast taken to thee thy great 
power. And what I want you to see in that statement is we are recognizing in that statement the fact that the great power with which he will rule the kingdoms of this world has always been his. It is his great power. It's just the fact that for the last 6,000 years, he has not exercised that power. But at this point, what it says is he is going to take to himself this power that has always been his. But make sure that you understand this morning that he could have, he could have exercised his power to rule this world anywhere and at any time in the last 6,000 years that he would so choose. When Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, listen folks, at that point, he could have exercised his glorious power. He could have come back to this earth. He could have stamped out sin. He could have stamped out evil. He could have cast Satan, the serpent, into the bottomless pit. But he didn't. The power was there, but he did not exercise that power. You know why he didn't? Because his purposes had not yet been realized. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth at his first coming, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, that he was the fullness of the Godhead in a human body. Listen. In that human body that Jesus walked this planet in, he held within that human body all of the power of the Godhead. It was all there. And he went through his life and he was humiliated. He was scoffed. He was laughed at. And you remember what happened. He, he, he was, the soldiers came to take him in the garden. They were coming for the purpose of killing him of crucifying him. And you remember what happened there? Peter grabs a sword and he begins to fight him. And do you remember what Jesus said to him in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53? You remember what he said? He said, Pete, what are you doing, man? He says, don't you realize that I could just say a word right now and I could assemble 12 legions of angels to deal with these guys? The power was there, but he didn't exercise it. You know why? Because his purposes were not yet realized. And folks, in the last 2,000 years, since our Lord has ascended to glory, you know what? He has watched from heaven, as on this planet, he has watched over 50 million people that named his name he watched as they were thrown to wild animals. He watched as they were skinned alive. He watched as they were put on, on, on racks and they were stretched until every muscle and every tendon and every joint and every bone was just absolutely thrashed and trashed. He, he watched as believers were drugged through the streets. He's watched as believing women were raped continuously one man after another he's watched as believers have had their eyes burnt right out of their sockets he's watched as their tongues were cut out he's watched as they've been thrown on hot grill grills he's watched as they've been impaled on stakes and burnt alive and folks listen 
anywhere along the way in the last 2,000 years. He could have risen, he could have taken his step off of that throne, and he could have come to this earth and he would have ruled and reigned in power, and he could have stamped out wickedness and evil and sin and all of that stuff, but he didn't. He didn't because his purposes were not yet realized. You say, well, what, what are these purposes that you keep talking about here? And I want you to see it in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, what he's saying here is, there's been this mystery, y'all. There's been this mystery. In other words, there's been this truth that God's just been holding on to for a while. He's been hiding it. It's a truth that he's kept hidden all through the Old Testament. And this mystery, this, this hidden truth that God's been holding on to all this time, this thing he says had to do with the Gentiles. And look at verse 6. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery. And Paul says in verse 7, that's why the Lord wanted me in the ministry. The end of verse 8, he wanted me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. He, he's just been holding on to this thing. It's been there all along. He's just been holding on to it. It's been hidden God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, watch this now, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. You, you see, listen, from the beginning of the world, God knew where this whole thing was going. I don't want us to get caught up on this, but, but just don't, don't lose your train of thought about this mystery. From the very beginning of the world, God knew where this mystery was going. And you know what this mystery really was? If you go back and check it out in chapter 1 and verse 4, what it says is that before the foundation of the world, what God did is He chose this group of people that we've been talking about, this group called the church, the Gentiles, before the foundation of the world, that eternal purpose was God was going to take that group of people and they were going to be in Christ. They were going to be in Him. And you see, all along, that's been God's plan. He knew where this whole thing was going. And there was an eternal purpose that He had determined that He was going to accomplish on this planet. And folks... 
Check it out. The eternal purpose was us. The eternal purpose was us. He, he was going to get a sorry, no good, low down, hell deserving, covenantless, Christless, godless, hopeless Gentiles. He was going to get us in his family so that we could fellowship with him. And he was going to take us that dirty, stinking, rotten group of heathen called Gentiles, he was going to take our sorry selves and he was going to put us and in Christ. So verse 10 says, so that we could be a facial to all of the demonic principalities and powers so that we could go out there and because he has allowed us to be a part of his kingdom where we are living for that eternal kingdom so he can just put us on display right in the face of Satan and all the principalities and powers. How are you doing as the facial, huh? But he says, man, this was the eternal purpose. I haven't exercised that power for 6,000 years. And are you checking this thing out, guys? For 6,000 years, Jesus Christ has refused to exercise this power that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 11. The power to come to this planet and rule the earth. He set that power aside because of us. Because he was wanting to get this group of people in his family and in his kingdom. And one of these days, folks, the last person is going to call upon the name of the Lord and will be placed in Christ. And the body of Christ will be complete. This dispensation will be over. And the church will be raptured off of this planet and onto glory. And then there's going to be seven years of time on this planet, a period that we call the tribulation, which is really the fulfillment of the promises and the purposes that we find in the book of Daniel and the vision of Daniel's 70th week, where once again, what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do during that seven-year period, he's going to turn his heart to, toward the nation of Israel. And when that 70th week has been completed, bang, it's going to happen, man. And he is going to exercise what is his. He's going to take that great power that has always been his and buddy when he does just like you see in Revelation 11:17 when he takes that power we're going to worship and we're going to praise and adore him because of it second Thessalonians 1:10 says that when the Lord Jesus Christ takes his power and he comes back to this planet to rule and reign taking vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of God what it says is on that day he will be glorified in his saints and admired in all them that believe so when that seventh trumpet sounds announcing the the arrival of his kingdom we express the gratitude of our hearts for what he has done for the fact that he is at this point going to exercise his power and then next he receives what he deserves and what's that he deserves to reign. And we worship him because of that. The middle of verse 17 says, Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And again, folks, listen. He's always had the right to reign over the earth. 
he has always deserved to reign over the earth. But, but now listen, before he would ever take up that throne and rule over the kingdoms of this world, there would have to be subjects in that kingdom. There would have to be citizens in that kingdom. And you see, for there to be citizens in his kingdom, what it meant is he would have to take his power and set it aside. He would have to take his right to rule and set it aside so that he could come to this planet and shed his blood and die on a cross and take our sin because you see our sin is what separates us from God it's what keeps us from being in his kingdom it's what keeps us from being in his family and what we're seeing here is he's always had the power he's always been deserving and had the right to rule but if there was going to be anybody to rule in that kingdom if there's going to be any citizens there before he exercised his power before he exercised his right he was first of all going to have to manifest his love and so God came to this planet and was humiliated he died our death so that we could be a part of this kingdom and he saved us out of that and he's called us guys to not live like this is our domain any longer that this is our kingdom He's called us to get our eyes on, on a different kingdom, a kingdom where He rules and reigns, not, not Satan. And so in heaven, He finally stands and He takes to Him His great power and He takes His right to reign. And when He does, we adore Him. The adoration of the saints. And if we're going to do that then, again, please understand, the whole key to this thing, guys, is us adoring Him now. Of His kingdom coming in us now. If you're here this morning you've never received Jesus Christ, listen, you know what? You're in the same boat that all the rest of us were in. We didn't have a covenant with God. We didn't have Christ. We didn't have God. We didn't have any hope. But God was holding on to this mystery. There's something that was hid all through the Old Testament, and that is that He wanted to fellowship with Gentiles like us and that we would be able to be put into his family we'd be able to put in be put into his kingdom and, and this morning if you've never received Jesus Christ listen man I'm thrilled that you're here I'm thrilled that you were able to hear the message today that God loves you and wants you to be a part of a kingdom that he is going to rule and reign over
on this planet and is going to blend into an eternal kingdom from there. He loves you and he wants you to be a part of that, but your sin is separating you from that, from ever receiving that. And you see, in order for his blood to cover your sin, you're going to have to take your right to rule your life and hand that over to another king and say, you are the king. You are the Lord, God, Almighty. You have the right to my life because you redeemed me. You not only created me, you redeemed me. You were the possessor of heaven and earth and of all that is in them. And I submit my life to you. Rule and reign in me. And listen, at that moment, what he does is he causes you to what the scripture says. He causes you to be born again. You become a part of his family. You get the promise of eternal life in that eternal kingdom. And it can be yours today. And what's going to happen, we're going to conclude here in just another second. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of, of this room waiting to answer any question you might have. If you need somebody to talk to about all of this, if, you, if you've got questions, come. They'll have somebody that can spend some time with you for the next little while. And, and, and whatever time is necessary so that you can understand how today you can be a part of his kingdom and his family. And for all of you who do know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior... Oh my, guys. That world has got an incredible pull. We've talked about that for a lot of years now. But the time is drawing nigh. It's getting close. And it's time. And we stopped living for this world and we start living for a different kingdom. Let's bow our heads. And right now, if God has convicted you today of your need of Christ or of your need to begin to live for His kingdom. Why don't you spend just a second right now talking to Him about that and determining what you're going to do about it. What's going to be different tomorrow than yesterday or today? What needs to change to get you to stop loving the world or flirting with it or focusing on it, filling yourself with it? What needs to change today? And let's, let's bring these things to the Lord and let's cast them at His feet as we cast ourselves before Him in, in the humility of our worship. And now, Lord, I, I want to ask you, to speak to the hearts of, of people in this room today that don't know you. And I pray that today they might know the incredible joy of being a part of that eternal purpose that you purposed from the beginning of the world. draw men and women, young people to yourself today. And oh God, would you please help those of us that know you to disconnect ourselves from this world system that is so against everything that you are. Oh Lord, help us to stop living for this temporal world over which Satan presides today. 
Help us to see the, the nastiness and the ugliness of claiming you as Lord and yet living in his domain. And I pray today, Lord, that that this would be more than just a a little sermon that we had. Even though it lacked eloquency, I pray that it would be something that you could use to, to redirect us so that we have a longing and a love, a groaning that manifests itself in praying every day for your kingdom to come. May it come today in us. In Jesus' name, amen.